I want to say a special thank you to all of our worship leaders and all of those who have worked to organize and bring this service together. And I want to say a special thank you to Betty Wilson, who read our first reading. Betty, as you may have detected, is a native of Scotland and has been at the heart of our Kirken service now for well over two decades, helping to lead us each year in the reading of Scripture and in other aspects of our worship. So we thank everyone and we thank you as well, Betty. Our second reading today comes from Luke's Gospel. We meet up with Jesus in this passage early in his public ministry. He has only verses before been baptized by John in the Jordan and then tempted for 40 days by the devil in the wilderness. And now here in the fourth chapter, beginning in the 14th verse, we meet Jesus as he gets back to familiar territory. Let us listen once more for God's word as we hear these verses from Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Jesus was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, Jesus went on to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The Spirit has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Then Jesus rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And then he began by saying to them, Today, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, send your spirit now that it would anoint us. Indeed, that it would rest upon each of our hearts. And that through its work, O oh God, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered here together in your sight would be in the words of the psalmist, pleasing to you, for you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There was a friendly debate earlier this week among the staff about what to put on the front sign of the church in the lead-up to the Kirken service today. The early front-runner was the suggestion that we put on the sign the message, grab your kilt and come to the Kirken. <laughs> that was followed by a close second, bagpipes and prayers. 
There were a few others that I can't include here today. <laughs> but as they say, sometimes the best option is the simplest, and so we settled simply on Kirken of the Tartan Sunday. The whole exercise, though, made me reflect on the fact that this Sunday, perhaps more than any other day of the year, is a time when we fly high our Presbyterian peculiarities, if you will. We fly them for all the world to see with our strange words like kirkin and tartan and bagpipes. No offense. You know, in so many ways, I found myself thinking that this is a Sunday more than all the others when we together go home in a way, when we visit our collective past as Christians who trace their roots to a particular time and place, when we visit that history in hopes that it might give us clear vision for the present. And as I considered that, it occurred to me that, you know, Jesus in our reading today is doing the exact same thing. Here we meet Jesus in Luke chapter 4, taking a trip into his past. Jesus has gone home to that place where he was raised as a boy and to a young adult, that city called Nazareth. It's fair, I think, for us to assume then that as Jesus takes the stand that day and looks out, he's looking out on faces who perhaps know him better than anyone else. He's looking out on people in that sanctuary who know just about everything there is to know about young Jesus, the good, the bad, even the peculiar, right? These are the people who helped to raise him. These are the people who taught him Sunday school. These are the people who gently slapped his hand as a boy when he got a little greedy at the donut table in coffee hour. These are the people who called up his parents the morning after they spotted him and his pals on the edge of town out past curfew. These are the people who gave him his first job and who gave him also his first second chance. It's interesting then, isn't it, that when Jesus stands up, he doesn't seem terribly interested in reminiscing about any of that. There is no sense in this text that Jesus is interested in taking a walk down memory lane with all these people who are like family to him. Instead, Luke tells us Jesus simply stands up unrolls the scroll that is given to him and begins to preach. You know, when we study our history as Presbyterians, one of the things that we discover as a hallmark of our heritage is that our tradition, perhaps more than any other in Christendom, is one that has emphasized the power of words. The Protestant Reformation, more than anything else, it elevated words, words that were read, words that were spoken, words that were prayed, words that were sung, words that were proclaimed. 
It elevated words to this place of prominence in public worship that had simply not been there before. Our spiritual grandfather, if you will, in the Presbyterian church is a man named John Calvin, a Frenchman who spent most of his life and career in 16th century Geneva, Switzerland. At the center of Calvin's pastoral work was preaching. There are three Protestant churches in Geneva in the 16th century, and in each of them, the word was proclaimed, was preached at least one time a day and twice on Sundays. And each of those sermons easily stretched oftentimes past an hour. Calvin was known for preaching through books of the Bible, often a verse at a time. He would even sometimes preach multiple sermons on a single verse. It's said that when Calvin was essentially excommunicated for a time from Geneva, for three years in fact, the first day back after that excommunication, when he was back in the pulpit, guess what he did? He picked up on the same verse that he had left off (laughs) at three years before. One of Calvin's protégés was a man named John Knox, a Scotsman. Knox is ultimately the father of American Presbyterianism. And when you study Knox's life, you are struck by the fact that he was not first and foremost an academic or a theologian, but rather a preacher. Even the architecture in churches like ours lifts up the importance of the word by lifting up literally the pulpit just a little higher than all the other places in the space. The Protestant Reformation was built on the belief that words, words have the power to reveal, to inspire, even to transform. I was with a group of preacher friends a few weeks ago in the mountains of North Carolina, and one of my friends was recounting a story from early in her ministry when she served a church in Athens, Georgia. I'm trying to decide whether or not this is where I should say go dogs, because I got in trouble last week for not anyway. My friend remembers that there was a woman in that church who had a spouse, a husband, who passed away suddenly. And after the funeral, the woman sort of disappeared for a long stretch of time, as is not uncommon. The church had always been the place that she and her husband had been together. It was a sacred space for the two of them, and it was simply too hard for her to come back right away following that funeral. My friend remembers, though, the day many weeks down the road when she looked out before worship one Sunday and she saw the woman sitting in the very back pew. And they waved and smiled and she went back to greet her and they caught up a little bit and then they embraced. They embraced there in the back pew and and there were tears. And before she could let go of this woman, the woman pulled her just a little bit closer. And through her tears, she whispered in my friend's ear, it all better be true. It 
that all better be true. That widow, she's in the back pew of our story from Luke's gospel today. When Jesus looks out, in other words, he sees a synagogue full of people like us. He sees the burnt-out nurse behind that mask. He sees the teacher who's on their last string. He sees the husband and wife who are still in a tiff from the week before when he sent the kids out with the wrong shoes and she forgot to run the dishwasher. He sees the single parent who has a pile of bills almost as high as the pile of laundry they left on the bedroom bed to come to church this morning. He sees the person contemplating the decision that will change everything about their lives. He sees people who are poor in spirit, people who are exhausted by life, people who are captive to the ways and the wants of the world, people who are blind to what is right in front of them, people who are sitting out there all thinking the same exact thing. It better be true. He sees people there in the church that morning so long ago who are hanging on his every word. Because the thing they need most are their lives to be transformed. Craig Barnes is one of the great preachers and pastors of our tradition today. And he has said about worship that all worship is ultimately about a single word, beholding. He writes space and time and worship is this this place where we try to stop being so distracted by our anxieties, our fleeting pleasures, our deep regrets, our loneliness, and our frantic efforts to save ourselves through more hard work. We try to stop being distracted by all of those things in worship in order to spend just one hour each week beholding the holy landscape in which we live. For good or bad, he says, words and worship, they can either lead us to the beauty of God's love or they can lead us back to the desperate struggle of navigating life without grace. Jesus stands in the temple that day and he unfurls that scroll and he reads those words that lead us to the beauty of God's love. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, he says. The Spirit has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And then with those eight Simple words, Jesus beholds the holy landscape on which they and we here today all live. Today, he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, that is why I think days like this one, days when together we go home, 
We visit our collective past. That's why days like this one are so important. Because the tartans, the bagpipes, the drums, the prayers, all the words, they all serve to remind us that like we talked about with the children, we are tied to this long line of people who despite grief, And despite hardship and darkness and struggle, have nonetheless glimpsed in their lives the holy landscape upon which they live. Right? Days like this one are so important because they remind us that we are tied to this long line of peculiar people who keep showing up, who keep showing up in that back pew. Because somewhere in them, there is a bright light of faith and the faithfulness of God. Days like this one are so important because they remind us that we join a long line of people who, even when they got it all wrong, did anyone keep reading this story today? We stop at a very convenient place in Luke's gospel. If you keep reading, what you find out is that that congregation wasn't too pleased with what Jesus had to say. They ran him straight out of church all the way out to those cliffs where he and his buddies hung out past curfew and they tried to throw him off the edge. I love that part of the story because so often I think we're tempted to read it and be like, look at these fools. I'm glad we're not like them. But in fact, of course we are. Here we sit and then we go out into our own lives and we find all those places where we quietly think to ourselves, hey God, if you could just hang out outside the door for a moment, well, God, I don't really want you to tell me I need to change this part of my life. Right? We join in this long line of people who are flawed and broken just like us and yet who continue to be amazed by the fact that even in the face of such brokenness, God's amazing grace still does not wane. Days like this one are so important, ultimately because we join a long line of people who with their words, yes, but even more so with their lives, spent their days slowly assembling the letters on the front signs of their hearts until they stepped back and took in what it said. And what it said was, behold, it is true. Friends, this is a day when we travel back into our past, not to stay there, but so that we can leave this place with new vision, with new messages on our hearts that reveal for others and for the world in which we live, behold, it is true. Amen.